Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. He took the job, and then he said, I'm going to recuse myself. I said, what kind of a man is this? On November 7th, one day after the midterms, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions resigned at the request of President Donald Trump, to the surprise of absolutely no one. Moments ago, Sessions releasing his statement in response, I took control of the Justice Department the day I was sworn in, which is why we have had unprecedented success and the President of the United States made a new statement this morning in just the last few minutes where he takes aim again at his own administration and his own Attorney General. I will read it to you out loud. Sessions' turbulent stint as U.S. Attorney General will surely go down in the history books. What they won't mention is that Sessions' political career almost ended before it really started. In 1986, allegations of racism ended his nomination for a federal judgeship. This put him in rare company, one of only two nominees in 50 years of hearings who wasn't confirmed. Members of the Senate Judiciary Committee sent him back to Southern Alabama, back to work as a U.S. attorney. After several years, Sessions rehabilitated his reputation and went on to become a four-term senator who would become one of the most popular politicians in the state. Things didn't go as well for some of the people who accused him of using racist language. Those are the stories we're going to hear about today. They didn't want to leave no doubt about who that boy was. They named him Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. I'm Amy Yerkinen, and this is Recused, a podcast by Reckon Radio. Over the next few episodes, we'll explore Jeff Sessions' rise from U.S. Assistant Attorney in Mobile, Alabama, to U.S. Attorney General in Washington, D.C., and his fall from grace. A quick word of warning. This episode does contain racial slurs. Sessions grew up in a small town called Hibbert in the Black Belt, a rural stretch of Alabama full of farms and timberland. His father was a shop owner and his mother stayed home with her children. He was named after his father and grandfather, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. The first name comes from Confederate President Jefferson Davis and his middle name from PGT Beauregard, the Southern general who launched the attack on Fort Sumter to start the Civil War. He did well in school, went to church, and attained the rank of Eagle Scout. On the surface, at least, Sessions became the sum of those parts and not much more. Hardworking, upstanding, loyal. Sessions graduated from Huntingdon College in Montgomery, taught for a year, and enrolled in law school at the University of Alabama. In 1975, two years after he graduated, he took his first job with the Justice Department as an assistant U.S. attorney. His rise was swift until suddenly it wasn't. Testimony presented to the committee in these hearings by the nominee himself and other credible witnesses has revealed racial insensitivity on the part of this nominee and lack of commitment to equal justice under the law, which, in my view, disqualifies him from holding the important position of a federal judge. That's from the 1986 hearing. 
You can see Jeff Sessions has darker hair and fewer wrinkles, but otherwise looks almost exactly the same as he did at his confirmation hearing for U.S. Attorney General 30 years later, when a lot of the same allegations would come up again. It was President Ronald Reagan who nominated him for a federal judgeship. After his rejection, it looked for a moment like Sessions' legal career might have hit the skids. As we all know, that's not what happened. But there was fallout from those hearings, according to the people who accused Sessions of making racist remarks. One of them was Thomas Figures, an assistant U.S. attorney who worked with Sessions. The other was Douglas Wicks, Mobile County's first African-American county commissioner. Douglas Wicks' story is almost too convoluted to believe, so I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit. It involves sketchy FBI agents, a corrupt county employee, and allegations of bribery. His life started to unravel after he refused to sign a letter supporting Sessions' judicial nomination. The letter came from Republican County Commissioner Jim Mason and was in answer to another letter that alleged Sessions made racist remarks. But so Jim Mason comes and said, you know, Sessions wanted me to sign a letter of support for, you know, not a letter supposed to be. From Jim Mason, Sessions is not bringing me the letter, but, and, and I refused. Because, I, I, you know, I'm certainly not going to support him, but I, I guess that could have been some kind of appeasement. So, and that's when the things, things really started after that. That's when they started. It was almost, he's not signing this letter, we're going to get it. Reagan also appointed Jeff Sessions to the position of U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Alabama in 1981. Politically speaking, he stood out in one critical way. Sessions joined the college Republicans as an undergrad when Democrats dominated Alabama politics and George Wallace made national headlines. He was in a good position politically when the Reagan revolution swept the country. That was also the year Wicks took office as the first African-American elected to the Mobile County Commission. A lawsuit had carved the county into three districts to increase diversity. The new system had caused some tension within the Democratic Party, which since Reconstruction had traditionally been the white party in Alabama, but was changing racially due to national events. Wicks was born in Mobile. In fact, his family was Mardi Gras royalty there. A football scholarship took him to college and graduate school in California. When he came back, he plunged into Democratic politics and ran for the seat that had just been created to increase black representation. The Klan was still very active in Mobile at the time, and members weren't about to let him forget it. He received copies of the Klan's newspaper, The Fiery Cross, in his office mailbox. The same year, members of the group lynched a young black man named Michael Donald, one of the last known lynchings in the United States. That was the Michael Donald hanging, okay? That, uh, that happened about, I think about two weeks before I took office. And when I got there, I received these fiery crosses, okay? Okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm talking about that. That's what that, the newspaper was called at the time, so I got those. But, you know, here's, here's the thing. You, you know, you had the, you had the beginnings of, of what we see now at the, the divisive politics as far as uh, Democrats, Republicans. But that was just the beginning during that time. It, it was more so a racial thing. But uh, to be fair, though, my biggest problem at that time, before I started getting threats, uh, was with, were blacks who didn't want me in this position. My chief rival at that time, he was a state senator, 
And that was my chief rival. They did not want me. I'm the new guy that's coming along, and I was supposed to be subservient, but, you know, to, you know, and I have to say I was cocky as could be, confident as could be, L.A. boy, you know, and full of that. And my first election, I was contested twice, okay? That individual contested my election in the court, and uh, then before the Democratic Executive Committee. And so I'm going to say that, that this is want to be fair. That wasn't the black and white thing. That was the blacks, okay, even though we were lying with some. You know, and, and so when I took office, I'm like, you know, I'm in battle mode from all sides, all sides, really. Sessions was active in the Mobile County Republican Party before his appointment as U.S. Attorney. A Republican candidate lost a close race for another county commission seat, not Wicks, and Sessions became involved in a lawsuit. That's when he allegedly used the racial slur that would come back to haunt him. Then-Senator Joe Biden brought up racism allegations five years later during Sessions' 1986 hearing in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In his question, he also referred to Dan Wiley, the other white Democratic member of the county commission, and John Archer, the Republican. Here's what Biden said. It is suggested that you stated to Mr. Wiley at the conclusion of a particularly contentious hearing back in 1981, do not worry or do not be too happy. He could not remember the precise phrase. John, meaning Archer, will be watching you and the nigger. And then, but that's when the reputation of Jeff Sessions started turning out, whether they were fair, whether legitimate or not, that it was said that you know, he was talking about how he was going to get him and he was going to get that nigga, which, you know, that, and, and that's, that was pretty well known. And, and what was really most troubling about that is this guy was going to be during a general and he's threatening to, to get you. And, but whether it's fair or not, there were rumors at the time, though, and that he didn't really kind of deny it that, you know, that he had Klan support, you know, that he, you know, had Klan roots and that he had made statements like that. And, and so, but again, you know, is he really wasn't so much of a thought for me at the time. I had, I had enemies on my heels. Sessions denied it all. Here's some of what he said to the committee. I am not a racist. I am not insensitive to blacks. I have supported civil rights activity in my state. During the hearing, he also said no African-American elected official served on the county commission at that time, which wasn't true. Wicks had been elected in 1980. Members of the Senate Judiciary Committee rejected Sessions' nomination to the federal court on June 6, 1986. Four months later, a federal grand jury indicted Douglas Wicks on charges of extortion. The only reason I have been indicted is because Jefferson Beauregard Sessions was not confirmed as United States federal judge, Wicks said at a press conference attended by reporters from the Mobile Register. Sessions, who had returned to his position as U.S. attorney, denied the case had anything to do with the Senate hearing. But it was prosecuted by attorneys in his office. The grand jury returned four charges against Wicks. Accusations as a county commissioner, he had shaken down businessmen in exchange for government contracts. The county solid waste director, who had been convicted of extortion in May, said Wicks was in on the scheme. Prosecutors also accused Wicks of extorting campaign donations from business owners. In all, prosecutors claimed Wicks extorted a total of $3,000 in four separate incidents. 
Each count carried a possible 20-year sentence. The FBI wired an informant, Gerald Godwin, and used him to bribe Wicks with marked bills. On the stand, the FBI agent said they never recovered any of the cash or caught Wicks on surveillance taking bribes. Two of the businessmen who allegedly bribed him also testified he never asked for money in exchange for contracts. They simply made campaign contributions, they said. But prosecutors pointed out that those contributions never appeared in official campaign filings. Gottwin is wearing a tape to my office, and, and the most in it, the remotely suspicious is he, he asked me a question about it. I said, well, I'm in a tight political race, and I can use all the help I can get. Now, that, that was it, and, that, and that's what all us politicians do. I need all the help I can get, and it was the truth. I was in a tight political race, and I needed all the help I could get. Wicks believed he could beat the charges, but then something strange happened, and this is when the story gets pretty interesting. Ten days before his extortion trial, an FBI agent accused him of theft. It was quite a coincidence. The agent had just put down money to buy a house in Wicks' neighborhood. Wicks and a friend passed the house, which they believed was abandoned, and saw some burglar bars lying on the ground. They loaded them into a truck when the agent and would-be homeowner showed up. Wicks said he asked the men to give him the burglar bars, and they did. Then the agent, who was also investigating Wicks for extortion, reported the pair to the local police for theft. Douglas said news coverage of the alleged theft tainted his corruption case. Jurors found him guilty, and a judge sentenced him to 15 years. A month later, the theft charges were dropped. When Wicks went to prison, he left his young family. Then about six months into his sentence, disaster struck. My sister and my wife and my nephew was in the car, the three of them in the car. My, well, my, my sister was killed in an accident. My nephew was, thought he was going to lose a leg. He was severely injured, and my, my wife was permanently, and she got brain damage. She's doing fine now, but she got brain damage. But she was in a coma for months. Yeah, and so what happened is they allowed me to come home, right? And uh, I think Sonny Callahan, who was a congressman at the time, Republican, he was very instru instrumental and seeing I get home, because uh, I, oh, I had a son that was not two years old at the time. He was, yeah, okay. And so I had a son, so the idea was to come home and sort of take care of my family, because it, it was actually wiped out. My sister was a backbone, so she was dead, and, my, and like I said, my wife was in a coma for months. His sister had been pushing for his exoneration, but now she was gone, and Douglas lost hope that his reputation could be restored. A congressman arranged for his early release from prison, but it didn't last long. A parole violation sent him back to the federal pen in Texas, where he stayed for five years. His family had been shattered, and so was his life. Wicks believes the unraveling began the day he refused to sign the letter supporting Sessions. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Thomas Figures, the man who testified about his former boss. Hey folks, this is Ike Morgan. I'm a journalist with AL.com and they let me host this little daily news briefing that we call Down in Alabama. It's designed both for Alexa users and podcast listeners and it'll take up less than five minutes of your time. Each weekday we briefly talk about three to five stories that relate to Alabama. Now, sometimes it might include the top news of the day, but we also like to mention something you might have otherwise missed or news trends that help tell the story of our state. 
or items that are just the most Alabama things we've heard lately. Again, we're called Down in Alabama. You can search for us on the major podcast platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. If you have an Alexa device, we're a perfect Alabama addition to your flash briefing. Either way, y'all come on by and listen anytime. We'll be down in Alabama. Welcome back, Reckon listeners. History books hold a lot of stories about the civil rights struggle in Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma. Mobile gets overlooked. It didn't have large-scale protests or bombings. The movement for equal rights didn't really get underway until 1968, more than a decade later than most Alabama cities. Some people assume this meant race relations were better in Mobile than other places, but violence would eventually come. Black business leaders played a huge role in Mobile's civil rights struggle. One of them, Noble Beasley, began organizing opposition to segregation in the late 1960s. He was larger than life, said his friend Fred Richardson of the Mobile City Council. He was a big man. I guess he was six, 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 seven. He was a, a big man. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He was a kind, humble man. But he he didn't take he wasn't taking anything. You know, here is a man whose father killed his mother before he could even see his mother. He never saw his father. He disappeared after killing his mother. He was raised by his grandmother. He finished high school. Uh, he was a seaman. He was a seaman. When he finished up the seaman, he got on at the United States Postal Service. He had he had honorable job, but he saved his money up at sea. He opened up the most fashionable nightclub in the South, the Sabre Club. He opened up a vault company where you bury people. He opened up barbecue place. His wife was a school teacher. And they complained about his car. His man got three or four outstanding businesses. And all of those businesses, the black community is with his clientele. So they couldn't hurt him because, you know, so they had to come and get him another way. Get him on conspiracy. But he, he was a was a fine man. And so, so was a friend, James Fender, outstanding man. Noble Beasley was a complicated figure, a successful businessman, but also a radical political force who aligned himself with black leaders like Stokely Carmichael. Law enforcement officers in the 60s and 70s arrested him on conspiracy to extort black musicians, drug charges, and attempted murder. He was either acquitted or exonerated in most of those cases. At one point, Beasley faced murder charges after he shot and killed a man who shot at him first. Richardson said it was a ridiculous case. It's difficult to know how many of Beasley's legal problems arose from his political activism and how many resulted from actual criminal activity. But he'd clearly landed on the radar of local and federal investigators by the time Sessions became U.S. attorney. They, they, uh, Beasley was first arrested for not paying taxes. State had to give him money back. He got him a lawyer and proved that he had overpaid his taxes. And then they had a band to shoot at him at his nightclub. And it, it wasn't a hard place left on his car that didn't have a hole in it. He made his way over to James Fender's drugstore. The same man drove up over there and stopped firing at him. So they crawled out the back door and they fired back at him. 
he ran out of bullets and went back in his car because the blood trail, because they hit him. It got a blood and it kept on firing until they, they shot him. They, so they tried both of them for murder. With an all white jury that set him free. Saying he had the right, this man to trail this man all over town shooting at him. And then you want to send him to prison for, for stopping it. So they didn't get they didn't get anywhere with that. So Jeff Session picked conspiracy. I should be clear here that Sessions had nothing to do with the attempted murder charges. Those were brought by local authorities in the 1970s. Sessions didn't become U.S. attorney until 1981. But Sessions was U.S. attorney when Noble Beasley finally faced charges he couldn't beat. Unlike Wicks, Beasley had nothing at all to do with the failed nomination hearing. But to understand what happened to Thomas Figures, you've got to start with Beasley. In the 1980s, a drug kingpin named John Christopher Jr. told investigators that Beasley was part of a drug trafficking ring in Mobile. Officers arrested Beasley and several members of his family. Although investigators never found drugs or large sums of money on Beasley, he was convicted of conspiracy and received life in prison under harsh crack cocaine sentencing guidelines. This is where Thomas Figures comes in. By this time, the former assistant U.S. attorney had left that position and gone into private practice. Noble Beasley hired him to handle the case. What happened was, Thomas Figures was the assistant U.S. attorney on the Jeff Sessions. They had Jeff Sessions up for a jury, a federal judge, and Thomas Figures testified against him. To say that he called him nigger, boy, and just all kinds of derogatory names, he didn't get the judgeship. So Figures set up a law practice, just an outstanding attorney, and Beasley hired him. And he tried to say that uh, Figures tampered with the witnesses. He tried his best uh, to send Figures to prison, but he, he wasn't able to do that. But Jeff Session gave it his best shot to take him out. Do you think it was, um, that was motivated by... Yes! Oh, ain't no doubt about that. Ain't no doubt about that. Jeff Session, in his heart, I believe he, was, he, he figured that that was a place in society for black people, but it was not side by side with that. His name, Jefferson, Beauregard Session. Beauregard was a general in the Confederate Army. <laughs> he was a general. Jefferson was Jefferson Davis, was the head of the Confederacy. They didn't want to leave no doubt about who that boy was. They named him Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. Back in 1986, figures testified that his boss, Jeff Sessions, had called him boy and told him to be careful how he spoke to white people. He also said he overheard Sessions say he thought the Ku Klux Klan was okay until he found out they smoked pot, a comment Sessions dismissed as a joke. That testimony, Figures said, prompted the federal investigation, several years later as retaliation. But according to FBI files, the investigation began when an attorney representing federal informant John Christopher Jr. told the feds he had a tape recording of Thomas Figures offering his client a $50,000 bribe not to testify against Noble Beasley. The FBI opened an investigation. 
This was years after Figure's testimony against Sessions. But according to news reports from the time, Sessions' office recused itself anyway. A couple of Department of Justice attorneys from Washington, D.C. handled the case instead. Even so, black leaders in Mobile decried the prosecution as politically motivated. About 30 of them testified as character witnesses in the trial. Things got so hot, the judge issued a gag order to prevent attorneys from talking to the press. And in the end, Thomas Figures beat the case. His attorneys argued that Figures was trying to catch the informant soliciting a bribe. Members of the jury found him not guilty. Thomas Figures was free, but not unscathed. In legal documents filed soon after the case, he claimed it nearly bankrupted him, making it difficult to meet his child support payments. It also took him out of the running for the position of U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Alabama, which was newly vacant under President Bill Clinton. Thomas Figures belonged to a prominent political family in Mobile. His brother, Michael Figures, was a state senator until his death in 1996. The senator's wife, Vivian Figures, took over the post and holds it to this day. She has opposed Jeff Sessions ever since. Vivian Figures was the last Democrat to challenge him for his Senate seat in 2008. And just this year, she spearheaded the effort to withhold a critical endorsement from a gubernatorial candidate who wrote a letter supporting the former U.S. Attorney General. So the bad blood runs deep. Thomas Figures passed away in 2015, and Vivian Figures declined an interview, as did Jeff Sessions. But for years, they alleged that the bribery case was payback. Sessions' political career was nearly over before it began. Under the harsh glare of Senate questioning, he had been judged unfit for the federal bench, an occurrence so rare it was almost unthinkable. Pundits portrayed him as racially biased, a Southern throwback. But that's not what happened. His career nonetheless took off. In 1994, voters elected him to the office of Alabama Attorney General. Two years later, he won a U.S. Senate seat. Voters in Alabama either overlooked or didn't believe the allegations of racism by Sessions. But they would continue to haunt him, even during his confirmation hearing for United States Attorney General. Attorney Jerry Hebert, a white man, also testified against Sessions in 1986 and opposed him again 30 years later. Here's his story. Hebert handled voting rights cases for the U.S. Department of Justice, work that often took him from D.C. to the South. When he was in Mobile, he spent time with Sessions. Uh, and in the morning, occasionally, he would invite me in. We would have a cup of coffee uh, from the coffee machine and sit and talk about the cases that I was working on or cases in general. Uh, my impressions were that he enjoyed having conversations with people, even people necessarily who uh, he didn't agree with, and was very uh, outgoing and willing, as I say, to talk about any topic that came up. The two attorneys didn't always see eye to eye, but they got along. Hebert described Sessions as outgoing and friendly, a pleasant colleague with the courtly manners of a native Southerner. Their conversations were casual. A few of the prosecutor's comments caught Hebert off guard. Well, that was in that 1981-82 period when we were sitting there, and he was very unguarded in the sense of his conversation with me. I mean, he made the comment that he thought the NAACP was a 
Kami Pinko organization. Those were his words. He also said the ACLU, he thought, was un-American for some of the positions that they had taken. And I think made disparaging remarks about the voting rights cases that we were bringing, that he disagreed with the theories and the the way the law was moving in that area to give uh, equality of opportunity, as I saw it, to black voters. Hebert said things never got testy between the two men. Still, the conversations stayed with him for years, long enough to come up in Sessions' nomination hearing. Jerry Hebert submitted a written statement about the things he and Sessions had spoken about. Then, to his surprise, Republican members of the Judiciary Committee asked him to testify in person. Like Wicks and Figures, he said there were threats his testimony could derail his life. They brought me back into a room, I guess kind of a cloakroom behind the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing room, and I was confronted there by Senator Denton and the chief of staff or the Strom Thurmond's chief counsel on the committee, and they said, you're going to get out there and straighten out this nomination. And I said, well, first of all, I don't know that I can do that because I'm going to repeat what I have already stated, and I certainly am not going to back down from that or retract it in any way because it's true. And then they kind of suggested to me that if I didn't get out there and do that, that it could cost me my job at the Justice Department. And I said, well, the last time I checked, neither one of you are in the Justice Department, and I only report to people in the Justice Department, and they've given me approval to testify if you want me to do that. And so you can't really threaten my job because uh, I'm going to tell the truth if I get up there. Nothing ever happened to Hebert's job. Now he works on voting rights cases in private practice and for the Campaign Legal Center. After he testified against Sessions, the two never spoke again. The one thing I remember about all of that, Jeff was sitting just a few feet away from me when I testified, which was a little unnerving in a way to have somebody who I knew really well and who I didn't really dislike in the sense that, uh, you know, we still had up to that point somewhat of an amiable relationship in the sense that if I went to Mobile and he was U.S. attorney, I could walk in and have coffee with him. But I remember... Senator Biden asking me after I, kind of at the end of my testimony, he said, if you were a civil rights lawyer for the NAACP and you filed a case in federal court and you drew Judge Sessions, um, and it was a civil rights case, and you know what he has said and what his positions are, would you seek to disqualify him on the grounds that he's biased? And I responded, yes, I would, every time. And... That kind of, I think he actually like tossed a pencil in the air when I said that. Like, okay, well then that's it. Recently, Jerry Hebert watched as Trump fired barbs at Sessions. Hebert disagrees with many of the positions Sessions has taken as Attorney General, but not the decision to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. As it turns out, there was another incident sort of similar to that when Sessions was the Attorney General of Alabama. Jeff believes in the rule of law and his view was, uh, it's a close case, but when the grand jury, a jury, the Court of Criminal Appeals, the Alabama Supreme Court, and federal courts have said guilty, he wasn't going to step in until I set that aside. Thanks for listening. This episode of Recused was produced and hosted by Amy Yerkinen for Reckon Radio. Special thanks to Lita Gore, John Hammontree, Challen Stevens, and Kelly Scott. 
If you like this episode, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.